Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cathedral of St. James podcast. The episode you're about to listen to is a conversation with Michael Rotolo on division and dialogue in U.S. politics. Michael is a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at Notre Dame. His research examines the origins, development, and outcomes of different moral worldviews, including values, social and political views, religious beliefs, future aspirations, and notions of the good life. This conversation was part of a six-week series in spring of 2021 titled From Division to Dialogue, Working Towards Life Together. In the series, we discussed what divisions we see in our communities, from faith to politics to race, and the barriers to life together that have resulted. We asked, what is at the root of these divisions? Given our divisions, how do we approach dialogue? Are there any current examples of dialogue that can serve as a model for addressing these divisions? And finally, what is the end or purpose of dialogue? We hope you enjoy the following conversation. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, one of our final weeks of this series on division and dialogue. I'm really, really excited for this morning. Uh, uh, Michael Rotolo is joining us to talk about division and dialogue in U.S. politics. Um, and I was telling him, you know, we've talked about politics pretty much every week so far, I feel like, and now we really just get a focus on it. Um, but Michael uh, also granted, graduated from Princeton Theological Seminary. Michael, you're a 2016 alum, is that right? Or right. 2016, okay, and Samantha and I were 2017. Um, so really cool to have that connection. Uh, Michael is a PhD student in sociology, um, working with Christian Smith, who Dr. Mirza mentioned last week in his uh, giving, giving a definition of religion, what religion is. But uh, Michael does so many interesting things, I think, uh, around politics, morals, religious beliefs, and of course, in, in the field of sociology. So. Um, Michael, uh, thank you so much for being with us, and I'll uh, turn it over to you. Sure. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today, and just wanted to say thank you for including me as a part of this series. I've really enjoyed hearing what our various speakers have had to share, and also to hear all the things that you all have thought in light of what they said. I think, in general, this kind of forum is super important for all the kinds of divisions we're seeing in society. So. Thank you also for being a part of it. Today, we're gonna to be talking about something that's not at all controversial, right? Um, division and dialogue in US politics. And I just kind of put that out there to break the ice because I know that sometimes just at the mention of the word politics, we can start to feel a certain tightness in our neck and a warmth in our chest and our heartbeat beating a little bit faster. Um, so I just put that out there as a way to say, you know, if you're feeling anything today, um, uncomfortable feelings, um, those are things we can talk about. Um, this is definitely heavy and difficult stuff. Um, and likewise, you know, I think it's just good practice to be, oh, to learn to be comfortable with those uncomfortable feelings sometimes. So I have a lot to get through today. Um, some exciting things to share from my ongoing research. I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen now. And can you all see that? Okay, it's just my title slide, let's see. Okay, so 
You know, when talking about divisions and dialogue in U.S. politics, there's obviously many different things we can talk about, and a lot of those have come up over the past several weeks. So I wanted to stick to, you know, the area I've been studying most in my dissertation research the past few years, and also one of the biggest cleavages I'm sure we're all familiar with in society, and that is what we call the political spectrum. Uh, we sometimes call this political orientation. We sometimes call it political ideology. And for those of you who can see this slide here, um, generally, you know, it's just a spectrum. And we have liberals on one side, which we sometimes call the left, and conservatives, which we call the right, and moderates in the middle. So it's important to say that as we're trying to understand divisions and dialogues in U.S. politics, there is no one catch-all way we can understand the things beneath those divisions. But in general, as social scientists try to explain um, our divisions, polarization, uh, what we sometimes call culture war attitudes, um, this spectrum, political orientation, tends to be the thing that captures the greatest amount of division. It's more important than uh, political party affiliation. It's more important than saying I'm Democrat or Republican. It's also more important than basic demographic factors alone, like race, class, and gender. Though obviously those things uh, intersect with this a lot, which we'll talk about. So when to talk about the liberal and conservative spectrum, um, I wanna just give a little bit of background on the data that um, my research is based on. Um, so the, the data set I use is called the National Study of Youth and Religion, which is a pretty large and well-known data set that my advisor, Christian Smith, conducted. Uh, this study was conducted between 2002 and 2012. So it's a 10-year study. And basically, Smith and several of his colleagues followed a large and nationally representative, diverse sample of young people from all across the country, roughly from when they were in middle school um, or finishing middle school all the way until they were in their mid twenties. Um, and I know this is a lot of data here on the slides, but it's just to give you a sense that this is a diverse and representative sample. Um, and basically, you know, when they talk to these young people every two or three waves, they ask them, what's going on in your, in your life? Um, what are your relationships with your family and friends like? Um, what's your relationship with religion like? They ask them all about their moral views. They ask them about their political views, what they wanted to be in the future. And so basically my dissertation is analyzing, you know, what is it that during this, this transition to adulthood, this 10 year period, we sometimes call emerging adulthood. What kinds of experiences shape our attitudes about what we wanna be, who we wanna be, um, and specifically for a recent project, our political views, what makes us liberal and conservative? So at this point in a academic presentation, I'd probably you know, go into probably 20 more minutes talking about just my theory and my methods, but I wanna jump into findings today so we can definitely have plenty of time for discussion. Um, so just to frame things, you know, when Stephen first posted this series, there were two kind of organizing questions. What is at the root of these divisions we've been talking about? And given our divisions, how do we approach dialogue? If there's anything you take away from, you know, all the stuff that's still coming, um, I hope it'll be this next slide. And that is on the importance of perception for political attitudes. So as we talk about culture wars, polarization, we talk about the different opinions people have, 
We talk about their different beliefs, their different attitudes. Um, and a lot of times, you know, when we talk about these things, it's, it's portrayed as conscious differences of values. That's the one we use more than anything. You know, these are my values, those are your values. But in the past few decades, cognitive science has taught us all kinds of things about the brain that we're just now exploring. And one of those is that over 99% of what's going on in our heads at any one point is unconscious. It's from our, our life experiences, our memories, um, just our senses. And so by emphasizing perception, I'm not trying to get anybody off the hook here. There's obviously more or less dangerous views. But I think as we think about dialogue, um, thinking of our differences as one of perceiving differently, of literally seeing the world differently um, through different frames can be a really productive way to think about those differences and why they're so hard to overcome. So if you can see this slide here, you may have seen this image before, but um, there's obviously two, it looks, appears to be men who are bickering and one is pointing at a figure on the ground saying it's a six. The other is standing on the opposite side, pointing at the same thing and saying it's a nine. And then we as the third party viewers can see that, um, you know, obviously we can't really say either one of these men is more or less right. We can't say one is more um, good, moral, anything like that. But we see that for the man who's pointing at the six and looking at it from his point of view, it, it literally does look that way. And same for the man who, um, is looking at it as a nine. So they could bicker all day about their different um, facts or values, but from where they're standing, their point of view, both of them are right. And if we don't acknowledge these perceptual differences, um, we can end up talking right past each other. So obviously when it comes to our dialogue about society and politics, you know, we're not debating whether this is a six or a nine, but we would say somewhere in that middle area would be society um, and government and our role in that. So I'm going to keep building on this. Um, obviously, not all perceptions matter. So in general, as I, you know, going through these interviews and these surveys with these young people and figuring out, you know, what are the perceptions that really matter? The best way I can concisely summarize it is differences in perception about the need for social reform. So as we're all looking at society, not even what do we believe, what do we think, what do we opine, but what do we see in the world? Does it seem like it's something we need progressive social change for? Or is society mostly good? Something that has all kinds of sacred values and traditions that we need to preserve and not let get taken away just by ideologies. These are some of the kinds of different perceptions we see when we're talking about that spectrum of liberals and conservatives. Just another way to phrase that as a question is basically, do we need collective, governmental, or personal action to better society? And so, you know, we can say maybe we all see some certain kinds of problems in society need to be addressed. But likewise, liberals and conservatives have different perceptions about whether that's government's responsibility, whether it's something we all need to put into, or whether it's totally up to individuals, you know. Individuals need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps is the language that kind of used, gets used that way. And so this is not a perfect image here and obviously it's missing conservative, but it's one of the only ones that I could find that kind of captures you know, these perceptual differences and how um, even when we're talking about politicians, sometimes we're, we're looking at the field of who's available differently. 
And so if you're a moderate, you might see Joe Biden as perfectly in the center in terms of, you know, how progressive his strategies for social reform are. You might see Hillary to the left and then Obama. And then uh, we have Bernie and Elizabeth Warren on the far left. Sorry, that's a little bit blurry. Over here on the right, you see Mitch McConnell and then Donald Trump. Um, but if we stick here to the bottom, you might, you know, if you really strongly perceive a need for social reform, and I would say, you know, many other countries that are more um, liberal leaning than America probably kind of see things this way. You might see Bernie Sanders as just a little bit left of center, um, like, you know, really advocating for that middle view of what's needed in America. You might see Obama and Biden and Hillary as on the right side and then McConnell and Trump falling off the far right. So again, it's just another way to think about how our perceptions different. And if we don't recognize these basic differences in perceptions, again, the conversation itself gets kind of lost. Okay, so it's one thing to understand, you know, what's at the bases of these differences in liberal and conservative views, which I'm calling needs about social reform. But we can keep building on that. My next question is why these divisions? What's going on in people's lives as they get older, um, become adults, start claiming independent identities? What, what leads them in one direction or another? And in general, I find three social factors that all play crucial roles in shaping our perceptions. So I'm going to talk about each of these, and I'll say that you know, they, each one might resonate with you a little bit, but I also want to say that they're incomplete. And at the end, we'll have to put them all together because it's really how they jointly work to shape perceptions. But as we're thinking about divisions and dialogues, we can, we can, you know, separate each of these three things and think about where does the church have room to improve? What strategies can we take? So the first social factor that really plays a crucial role in shaping people's perceptions about whether they won't reform in society or not is what I call social perception. And we can simply summarize this as insider or outsider social status. And we, you know, we can think about this as a spectrum too. It's not a simple binary, but hopefully just in these images here, um, you probably get what is meant by this. And this kind of resonates with some of the kinds of themes we see in many children's books. So if we just take this one on the left, you see a group of, it looks about seven black ducks who are all in a circle standing together and then a yellow duck on his tippy toes who looks like an outsider saying, hey, wait for me. Um, and so social position, if you are one of these black ducks, part of the dominant group in society, most people are like you. Um, everything generally seems to work well, you know, you can live by society's traditions and values and it, you know, it doesn't really hurt you in any way, it doesn't exclude you in any way, then in general, your perceptions about whether we need um, to reform society might, you know, you might not think we need to change things as much as this little yellow duck who's by themselves an outsider and very different from everyone else. Now, looking at these images, obviously, you know, the main contrast you see is one of color. So you might think I'm talking about race here. And I think race does have a huge, um, huge role to play in whether we perceive ourselves to be part of the dominant group in society or the more marginalized group. But I will say this is bigger than just race and cross cuts all kinds of things we're interested in. 
So um, it can tie to gender differences, gender inequalities. It can tie to different sexualities that are less common, um, you know, non-heterosexual identities. It can tie to social class and whether you really feel like one of those groups that society is not working well for. And so basically, whether you're an insider or an outsider kind of deals with whether you, to the extent to which you deal with marginalization, oppression, exploitation, um, even bullying, something that kind of makes you question the status quo and whether you're a part of it. It's obviously going to play a crucial role in your perceptions about whether society should change or not. So that's the first factor. The second thing that plays a crucial role in our perceptions is what I call political knowledge. And this definition might sound a little bit clunky, but it comes from the literature, so I'll break it down. Um, Scholars generally define political knowledge as the range of factual information about politics that's stored in long-term memory. So each of these parts, um, they emphasize range because this is not knowledge about a particular subject. It's your broad knowledge of society. Um, it's factual, it's not misinformation or fake news. It's information, it's not your opinions or your beliefs. And then the emphasis on long-term memory distinguishes this kind of knowledge as something you've really internalized and you, you know, not just something you saw on social media or the news and then forget because it's you know short-term memory. Um, so whether you have a, a lot of knowledge about politics, how they work, how society works and what its various pros and cons are versus a very limited knowledge, maybe a, an anecdotal knowledge primarily just from um, your own point of view, your kind of anecdotal knowledge, that too is going to play a major role in your perceptions about society. Um, and so I just want to describe this figure here as one example of this. This comes from a very famous sociological article by the late Deva Pager called The Mark of a Criminal Record. And in this study, Pager did a large experiment where basically she sub submitted um, applications to real jobs that were hiring in the world. I think it was something like thousands of them. And all of her made up applicants were male and they had the exact same resume um, and application. The only difference was that some of them were listed as white, whereas others were listed as black. <clears throat> and um, they were given, some of them had no criminal record, some had a criminal record. So as these jobs actually made calls to um, tell people whether they got the job or not to hire. Um, Pager found that white men were called back 34% of the time, whereas black men with the exact same materials were only called back 14% of the time. So white men got the call over twice as many times as black men, um, with the exact same materials. If we look at those with a criminal record, we see that white men got called back 17% of the time, black men only got called back 5%. You have to make a card. That's a card for an old person. So um, among those with a criminal record, white men actually got called back over three times as many times. And just a really kind of interesting thing that also came out of this study um, that was unexpected. If you look at these two middle bars here, um, we actually see that white men with a criminal record got called back more times than black men with no criminal record in the same materials. And so this is obviously just one small finding about you know, things we see in society. But when you're aware of these kinds of uh, systemic social issues um, um, versus unaware, um, that can make a huge difference in your perceptions about whether we need change or not. 
you know, to kind of point to the alternative point of view, if you thought none of this was a matter of structural inequality or racial biases, you might just say, oh, you know, black men need to work harder. They need to um, stop being lazy. These are some of the kinds of things that some of our interviewees actually say when they um, generally aren't aware of these things. So second emphasis is the importance of knowledge. Um, knowledge, we have to know what we're talking about. Okay, third thing, and then we'll put this all together and then we'll try to get into a discussion about this. Um, the third factor I, I identify that really seems to play a crucial role in perceptions is what I call prosociality. We might associate this with altruism or the values of care and kindness and compassion. Obviously in this image here, you see a little girl who is uh, presumably sharing her cookie with another girl. Um, but I mean this to be a little bit broader than um, something like a value, something like an attitude. Um, it's more like a disposition that really um, follows us throughout life based on our experiences and kind of definitive of the way we approach other people. So a lot of research on emotions and neuroscience um, and development, human development shows that generally people who are raised in an environment of trust, of love, of uh, support and encouragement, as they get older, they tend to demonstrate higher levels of prosociality. So they tend to be more open to new experiences. They tend to be more open to um, cultural diversity and diverse others. They also tend to prioritize other people's needs more highly in relation to their own needs. So that's really what I mean about by prosociality. How much do you uh, basically prioritize other people's needs in relation to your own? And of course, all of us help others in some ways. And likewise, every day we take care of ourselves um, and feeding ourselves and bathing ourselves and you know, developing our lives. Obviously, I don't, I don't mean to say that pro-social is good, self-focus is bad. Of course, everything is about balance, but um, we've learned about some of the different ways our experiences shape that orientation. So on the other hand, we know that people who um, experience really intense bouts of hardship people who have experienced trauma, um, those who particularly as children were made to feel guilty or shamed or embarrassed, um, those who developed repressed anger, they tend to have a much more threat sensitive disposition as they get older. Because of the hardships they've experienced, they actually really feel like they have to preserve themselves. And so they tend to be less pro-social. Um, and again, that's just, again, I'm not, you know, not putting a moral judgment on any of this. It's just to say the powerful ways our experiences shape our orientations towards others in relation to ourself. Okay, so those are the three social factors. I know this probably feels like a lot, but we're going to put it all together now. So basically, I put this all into a big statistical model um, because I have measures of each of these for these 2,000 young people and kind of saw how they related to liberal and conservative orientations. And this table summarizes my basic findings. And again, there's a lot here, so I'll have to break it down a little bit. Um, just to orient you to this table, you'll see at the top here, we have the insider and outsider position I talked about. Towards the side, we have high and low political knowledge, and then we have pro-social and self-focused. Because there's three dimensions, I have to map it this way in a two-dimensional space. Um, this 
insider outsider at the top is not more important than anything. But before I talk about some of the important combinations, I just want to emphasize that for each of these different things I've talked about, we see liberals and conservatives in every single group. And so if we look over here at this whole left side um, of people who fall under insider position in society, we see liberals and conservatives there. If we look to the right side at people who had outsider positions, we see liberals and conservatives. If we look at this bar all the way across of high political knowledge, we see that liberals, there are liberals and conservatives who have really high levels of political knowledge according to my measures. We also see liberals and conservatives with low political knowledge. Um, sorry if this is getting redundant, but um, if we look at pro-sociality, we see that there's liberals and conservatives who are highly pro-social, who really care about other people. And likewise, we see liberals and conservatives who are self-focused. And so none of these groups have a monopoly over any of these categories. I know as we talk about political divisions, it's easy to try to um, you know, reduce our divisions to one of these things. But what really matters is how they work in combination, again, to shape those perceptions about whether we need basically change or not, whether society is basically good. And so I'll take a stab at explaining some of these groups. So in general, if you are an insider in society, you know, um, society tends to work pretty well for you. You wouldn't identify as a marginalized identity necessarily. And, um, you know, I can put myself out there and say, I, you know, as a straight white male in society who's been raised in a good family and had opportunities to explore higher ed, you know, I would definitely generally consider myself part of the insider group um, and not an outsider. Um, Likewise, I, you know, I don't wanna make assumptions about anyone's experiences, but I know a lot of people in this room probably feel this way as well. Um, many people who would be a part of fairly affluent, um, predominantly white churches in America would likely you know, identify as insiders as well. Um, and in general, we would think you know, if you're an insider, you would be less likely to want to uh, see social changes. You know, society works well for you we actually see a liberal group here. If you are an insider, but also highly pro-social, you've been, um, through your experiences, basically you've cultivated an orientation towards helping others and you have a high political knowledge of some of the kinds of inequalities that are out there. In general, you might lean more towards liberalism. So I won't ask anybody to raise their hands in here, but if you do identify as more liberal, um, I would imagine um, you might be likely to fall in this group. Likewise, we know that many churches um, values related to pro-sociality and caring for others is a huge emphasis. Um, and so if we move just down below that category to um, this one, we see that, you know, there's, there's conservatives as well in this very similar group. And the main difference here is um, the political knowledge they have, the types of political knowledge they have, um, whether they see society as having lots of um, problems that are structural in nature and widespread or more personal problems. Um, if we move over here to these two categories here, we can see if you're an insider and you're primarily focused on yourself and not others, then political knowledge doesn't appear to matter at all because your orientation is already going to be primarily on your, need, your own needs. And so you might lean towards conserving or preserving society. Uh, if we move to this right side, 
those who generally perceive themselves to have an outsider position, marginalized. Um, we see that most of these groups identify as liberal, but there's also one that identifies as conservative. And so if we think about a lot of the um, salient political groups we've been seeing in the news lately, um, the kind of people that Donald Trump has identified as forgotten Americans, who Hillary Clinton once re regrettably called deplorables, and even some of the people we saw, you know, who were at the White House on January 6th, there's actually a group of conservatives who likewise feel themselves to be heavily, heavily marginalized, um, who have, you know, faced um, intense bouts of hardship. Um, and I think it's been a scholarly puzzle, you know, progressive fiscal policies in many ways would benefit this group. And so it's been why, you know, do they not lean towards those changes? But in general, because of their hardships, many of them do have a more um, self-focused, effective orientation and emotional orientation. And likewise, we do know that um, political knowledge tends to be lower levels among this group. And so that's kind of that group um, that we see there. Now, lest we think that liberals are the caring pro-social group and conservatives are just the self-focused group, we can move right above that and see here's a group of liberals who are also self-focused. Um, this was a, a very sizable portion of my sample. And, um, you know, talking to them, you know, I saw very little regard for other people's needs in general, but many of these people also identified with one of those marginalized outsider statuses. So when they actually wanted to see progressive social changes, you know, we tend to sometimes say, you know, if you want free college, free wealth, free healthcare and all that, you know, that's a, that's a value that's caring. Um, these people actually wanted it because it would benefit them personally. And so just because a person has a certain stance on an issue, um, their intentions for that stance can be a little bit more complicated. Um, we can't say that the stance itself is necessarily more caring versus not caring. So I know this is a lot um, and I wanna shift us towards conversation. This might be something um, to digest a little bit more, but I wanna just highlight a few takeaways from this that can kind of prompt some of our discussion. The first, as I said, um, if you take away anything what I'm trying to emphasize is that perception really is key. We literally perceive the world differently based on our different experiences. Um, and those still important conscious beliefs, values and opinions are only a small part of our views. And so a lot of people who are really looking into political division have taught us even in the past year or two, um, when you're talking to somebody you disagree with, just presenting them with data, facts, um, that's not gonna do much to change their minds. Um, perceptions are really deeply rooted. We actually find that sometimes when you present data on social media, if someone else who's of the opposite party or opposite in the spectrum sees those, um, some of those, those negative emotions get triggered and actually drives them deeper into their views. And so that that division is actually expanded by trying to persuade them, you know, in the informal context of social media that's not very personal. Um, and so we have to really think about how do you change people's deeply seated perceptions? It's obviously difficult work and I don't have all the answers, but um, I think that that's really the key. When one person sees a six and the other person sees a nine, how do you get them to see the same thing? Second, 
As I tried to emphasize, there is no conservatives are one way and liberals are the other. Uh, most of the time when we try to link uh, a certain value to these groups, we're kind of doing a reductionist, uh, making a reductionist argument to try to support our views. In fact, what we actually find is there's significant overlap in our experiences and different combinations of those things I talked about, as well as some other things that are important but less important lead to different perceptions. And so to me, that says, you know, if I'm talking to somebody who's of the opposite political party, maybe I can think about what we have in common and where we, where we differ, you know, in terms of insider and outsider position, are we pretty similar in terms of the kinds of experiences we've had in society or are we gonna have very different perceptions because of that? Um, you know, in terms of knowledge, maybe we both have high political knowledge but still see differently. What, what other kinds of things are at stake and leading to those views and where can we find at least some points of common ground? And then finally, just you know, taking off my sociologist hat here and thinking more about what this specifically means for someone approaching this from a Christian angle, um, I think this leads us to rethink what it means to be empathetic in terms of Christian empathy in some ways. So, you know, as we learn from the lessons of Jesus and across the Bible, a lot of times we talk about care and kindness and compassion and humility and service. But I think just seeing um, how these perceptions differ about society and seeing these other things that play a role beyond pro-sociality, we see that knowledge or education is super important. And we see that experience is really important. So I know all kinds of churches because I have ministry friends that are having to make cuts to their uh, adult education in favor of other things. But um, in some ways this strikes me that, you know, that education element of church is one of the most essential parts of finding common ground today. Um, what kind of work can we do as a church community, as within our congregation to um, learn more about the various things that are happening in society and at least have a similar sort, a similar type of knowledge so that again, we're not talking past each other. Um, in terms of shared experience, you know, that's more of something that's ascribed than something you choose. You don't really choose necessarily to be um, part of the dominant group or marginalized. And I don't mean that one is better or worse than the other. It's just kind of the nature of social forces. But I think that just tells us, you know, if you're an insider um, in particular, uh, one, you know, we might associate with words such as privilege and power. Um, it, it just points to how important it is to really get that outsider experience, to really try to get in the shoes of other people, which is, you know, a phrase we use a lot. So, um, you know, just this final thing here, I think this leads us to think beyond care and compassion, um, that learning, continuing to learn, continuing to try to experience what others experience is also a crucial part of caring for them. <laughs>